Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro of the Legal Consulting Group. And hello, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. The Bar on Healthcare is available on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare, subscribe, tell your friends, and please leave us a kind review. And JD, the bar is open. Come right in, grab your favorite spot. We're glad you're with us because it's movie time here at The Bar. And today's feature is the much-delayed third installment in the long-running ACA litigation franchise entitled California v. Texas. This is the third chapter in what Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito calls the Epic Affordable Care Act Trilogy. Now, here at The Bar, movie fans know the third installment is the one that determines whether the franchise goes on. Sometimes you get a real winner with number three, like Goldfinger or The Dark Knight Rises. Sometimes you get one that's, well, not quite as good as its predecessors, but it has some redeemable features like Return of the Jedi. More often than not, you get a real dud like The Hangover Part 3, and California v. Texas definitely falls into that category. In fact, it's disappointing on so many levels, Carrie. It's hard to know where to begin. Where did this case go off the rails? Well, like The Hangover Part 3, this wasn't really a very exciting decision. As our listeners will recall from our prior discussion about this case, it really stems from the reduction of the individual mandate penalty to zero back in 2017. Since the individual mandate and therefore the ACA had been upheld by the Supreme Court as a tax in 2012, plaintiffs, including both the individual plaintiffs and the state plaintiffs, filed suit saying that since there was no longer a penalty, penalty, the individual mandate was unconstitutional and therefore the entire ACA was unconstitutional. And instead of addressing the substance of those questions, the court essentially punted and didn't really get into those specific issues. Yeah, I think, Carrie, when you look at this, I have to fault. It's not simply the script. I wouldn't want to put this on the script writers and Justice Breyer, who wrote the majority opinion. The whole cast really disappoints here with their performance. You have to look at the newbies as well. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, especially Barrett, who was supposed to come in and be the real barn burner on this. You know, she was supposed to set the world afire, taking the ACA apart. She's nowhere to be found in this decision, a real non-entity as far as her performance goes. The only one who gives a spark of life here uh, to their performance is Justice Alito. And he really picks up on the standing by inseverability argument, which, which actually nobody else in the cast really looked at. But he points out in the dissent that the court says that the states cannot establish standing unless they show that their injuries are traceable to the individual mandate. And the states claim that their injuries are indeed traceable, and they proceed by doing that in two steps. First, they contend the individual mandate's unconstitutional because it doesn't fall within any power granted to Congress under the Constitution. Second, they argue that the obligations imposed on them by other provisions of the ACA are costly, and they can't be severed from the mandate. And if both steps of that argument are correct, then the government cannot lawfully enforce those obligations against the states. A really interesting performance by him in this. It's not picked up by anyone else other than Justice Thomas, and I think just ignored in the rest of the decision. And Kerry, we pointed this out, I think, in the oral arguments as well, you know, that there was that interest in establishing that they didn't have standing to bring this. Yeah, and there's a reason why Justice Alito was pretty much out there by himself on this whole theory. Even Justice Thomas didn't give much credence to the whole standing by inseverability theory. 
jury. And we saw this during the oral argument. During the oral argument, most justices expressed skepticism of this whole theory. And just as a reminder, this is the theory where plaintiffs point to the harm they face, not from the individual mandate itself, but from other provisions of the ACA. So the argument goes that because those other provisions of the ACA are inseverable from the mandate, the injury caused by those provisions is still relevant to the plaintiff's standing issue, which, of course, the court rejected pretty much out of hand with seven justices coming to that same opinion. And don't forget, during the oral argument, California, who was defending the ACA, said, look, you know, they were happy to argue on the merits and they'd love a ruling where standing by inseverability would be enough to give them standing because it would set a great precedent for any actions they might want to bring before the Supreme Court going forward. Yeah, I think this is one, like I said, I don't want to pick out, you know, any particular part of this decision. It all was, I think, really a complete non-event, at least as far as what we were looking for here. There is, however, one interesting aspect of this case, and I have to tip my hat to the bloggers at the Volok Conspiracy, that libertarian law professor blog, for picking up on this. In the first case, and probably the best of the decisions, I think if you're going to look at the three here, NFIB versus Abelius is really the most interesting of the three cases. This is how the Chief Justice framed the issue. He said that under the mandate, if an individual doesn't maintain health insurance, the only consequence is that he must make an additional payment to the IRS when he pays his taxes. And that means the mandate can be regarded as establishing a condition, which is not owning health insurance, that triggers a tax the required payment to the IRS. Under that theory, the mandate is not a legal command to buy insurance. It makes going without insurance just another thing that government taxes, like gasoline or income. And if the mandate is in effect just a tax on taxpayers who don't have health insurance, it may be within the Congress's constitutional power to tax. And the key word there is tax. The Chief Justice frames this as a choice. And that was the most controversial finding in Enfig versus Sebelius. Either maintain health insurance or pay a tax. Now, you fast forward to California v. Texas, and you take a look at the first two sentences of Justice Breyer's opinion. I mean, right out of the gate, he ignores everything that was said before back in Five B versus Sebelius about taxes. He says the ACA required most Americans to obtain minimum essential health insurance. And the act imposed a penalty scaled according to income upon individuals who didn't do so. And Congress effectively nullified that penalty by setting it back to zero in 2017. The key word there is penalty. The very word that Chief Justice Roberts rejected back in 2021 when he went through pages of legal analysis to meld together a 5-4 opinion that held this payment was a tax, not a penalty, and that the federal government couldn't mandate the purchase of health insurance and could only offer Americans a choice, buy health insurance or pay a tax. Justice Breyer completely ignores that. In the movie and TV business, this is called retconning retroactive continuity. Take the established facts in the series and ignore them in the subsequent work. Time turners can go back decades in Harry Potter, not five hours. Bobby Ewing suddenly appears in the shower in Dallas. Ray's lineage suddenly becomes important in the rise of Skywalker. And this time, the penalty that they call the tax actually becomes a penalty again. Carrie, I know you're thinking the summer heat is really getting to JD. We have to turn up the air conditioning here in the bar. I know this isn't crucial to the holding. It's what we lawyers call dicta. But when it's the opening lines of the opinion, it is really hard to ignore that. Any insight as to what Justice Breyer was thinking, or was he just going with the seven to two and saying, I'll write it my way? Let me just say, I don't find this to be nearly the cliffhanger that you do. You know, first of all, in the statute, the, the ACA statute itself uses taxpayer and penalty in the same sentence when talking about the individual mandate. So it's there in the statute. And also keeping in mind that the Volok conspiracy blog was cited as playing an important role in influencing America against the Affordable Care Act. 
Act, and it includes Randy Barnett as a contributor who argued against the ACA. Georgetown Law Professor, let us point that out. Yes, that is true. But he also argued against the ACA and FIB versus Sebelius. It doesn't really surprise me that they would be quick to point this out and try to make this point. But at the end of the day, as you point out, it's only dicta and it's really irrelevant anyway, because as we said, the court never even got to the substantive issue. So penalty versus taxes was sort of irrelevant to the decision because they simply found the plaintiffs didn't have standing to bring the case because they didn't suffer an injury. And that was enough for the ACA to be upheld and continue to be the law of the land. So Carrie, to drive the movie metaphor home here, can we look forward to a fourth movie in the ACA trilogy here? Or is this really the end of the line for the ACA litigation franchise? Oh, geez, I hope not. I think <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> I think they've squeezed about all of the revenue out of this statute that they can. So I don't think we're likely to see anything else on this, but you know, stranger things have happened. How many Fast and Furious movies do we have? Hey, to quote another movie franchise, never say never again. But going forward now, what can we look forward to as we enter the second half of 2021? What do we think employers are going to see in terms of healthcare issues and what you're going to wait until 2022? Top of mind here, something we've been talking about for a while, surprise medical billing rules. Carrie, where do you think these regulations are going? Yeah, so we're expecting rules on this any day now. We've been hearing that it's in the final stage of the review process. And knowing the agencies like we do, we could very well see it later this week, right before the holiday, where they get it off their desk and onto ours. But actually, these rules are expected to fill in gaps in last year's legislation that prohibits surprise medical billing. And as we've talked about before, this happens when a plan participant receives out-of-network emergency services, or they get out-of-network services at an in-network facility, like radiologist or anesthesiologist at an in-network hospital. So while the legislation is pretty clear that individuals can't be charged any excess amounts or balance billed, questions have remained regarding what exactly plans will have to pay to out-of-network providers and how the independent dispute resolution process that's part of this legislation will work. And there's really not much time to get this up and running because the new process is supposed to go into effect in 2022. So I know employers are and carriers who are employer partners are anxiously awaiting these rules so they can start working on them and get them implemented for next year. We're also hearing a lot about vaccine passports. JD, what can you tell us about those? Well, first of all, I have one. And I'll tell you about that in a couple of minutes. But the health experts are calling on the Biden administration to do more to try to encourage and promote the use of vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. So far, the White House has stayed out of what they view as an issue, mostly for private employers. Now, there are some private employers that are looking at the vaccine mandates. I think we had the hospital in Texas a couple of weeks ago ended up winning that decision where they ended up saying that they were mandating the vaccine for their employees. There are some that are talking, but I think much, much fewer are talking about vaccine passports as well. But the Biden administration has repeatedly said vaccine passports won't be implemented at the federal level. They have not discouraged, however, individual companies from making the personal choice of implementing one. And there is no way to tell, at least, you know, just from someone who walks in who's vaccinated and who's not without asking for proof. But the federal government hasn't so far given any kind of guidance or support to businesses that want to require proof of vaccination for customers and employees. There is only one state so far that I am aware of that has actually implemented a vaccination passport system. And that is New York State with the Excelsior passport. And I actually have it on my uh, on my phone. It was relatively easy to get. You simply go to the New York State website. Uh, you enter in some information about who 
who you are and where you got the vaccine from and what type of vaccine. All of it, by the way, information that New York State currently has because they're the ones who basically knew where the vaccine was being distributed. So they had all the information themselves as to where I got it and what type of vaccine it was and how many shots I had. So I didn't have to give any additional information to the state. I simply confirmed what they had. And then I downloaded a something that looks, you know, kind of like one of those, uh, you know, airport boarding passes with the, doesn't say TSA pre-check, but it does have that little square and you pass it through. Well, you pass it through whoever is using the vaccine passport at this point. And so far, there aren't a lot of businesses that are doing it. A lot of them are relying, well, I have to say, most businesses at this point are relying on the honor system. Just saying, look, if you have been vaccinated, you don't have to wear the mask. You don't have to socially distance. Haven't been any place where they, in New York State, where they have actually asked for this. Now, honestly, it's only been a couple of weeks. I don't get out that often, as you well know, Carrie, from the last rant I had here. But as things open up and as people are becoming more willing to travel, this is probably something that more states are going to look at. And it is creating some debate, particularly I mean, down in Florida. They had the debate about passports and also how it applies to uh, cruise ships as well. I don't plan to take any cruises in the future, but uh, you know, it is something that I think you know more employers are going to look at as things reopen and as we get to the question of, okay, if you say you've been vaccinated, how do you prove it? And what do you do with unvaccinated employees who come back to the workforce? How do you manage that mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated people without discriminating against people because of religious beliefs or because of disability or just because they happen to fall into a protected class that for some reason or another hasn't had access to the vaccine? But where else do we see this going in the second half. Well, just one comment on that before we move on. So I think that's interesting. So you have some states who are promoting it like New York, and you have some states who are prohibiting vaccine passports like in Florida. So it's really going to depend on where you're located and where you want to travel to, because it sounds like it's going to be a state-by-state issue if the federal government is planning to stay out of it. Yeah. And actually, we had that a few years ago with a same-sex marriage, where you know you could be driving down I-95, married in one state, not married in the other. And that took a few years to work itself out. But in terms terms of things that are coming up, where to see the most likely places for action in Congress? Yeah, so one of the things that's getting a lot of attention right now is permanently expanding the federal ACA subsidies and the exchanges. So as our listeners might recall, the American Rescue Plan temporarily expanded the subsidies. So individuals with higher incomes would be eligible for subsidies where they may not have been eligible prior to that legislation passing earlier this year. I think the thing that employers just need to be cognizant of when it comes to that is don't forget that employer mandate penalties are dependent upon if a full-time employee in your organization receives a subsidy in the exchange that could trigger a penalty. And of course, the number of people who get subsidies could determine the amount of the penalty. So to the extent that expanding the subsidies mean that more employees may be eligible, that could, of course, trigger penalties for employers. So just something to watch out for there. We're also hearing a lot about paid family leave. JD, what can you tell us about that? Because there's a lot of different variations of that that have been introduced or at least discussed in Congress. Yeah. And I think over the years, we've seen some from the Republican side, which basically rely on tax credits and rely on drawing early on social security benefits. Others that I think are gaining traction, at least in the House of Representatives, that look more to mandates on them for employers with set 
periods for family leave. This is something the Biden administration has pushed for. I think where employers seem to be moving on this, or at least that was reported in some of the blogs in the last couple of weeks, is that a lot of employers will look towards signing on to this, provided that the trade-off here is preemption of state and local leave laws. Because that's really where if you're a multi-state employer, you have to, as our colleague Rachel Arnetta said, you're, you play this game of whack-a-mole, where you've got some leave laws come up in one state, you deal with it there. Another set of differing leave laws comes up in another state or another locality, you have to deal with it there. So a preemption provision in these family leave provisions, I think, would go a long way towards getting the employer community to back them. However, it's a question of whether you're preempting it totally or just partially. If the preemption just relates to putting in a floor for family leave programs and states and localities can enact more generous leave laws, I think that's going to be an issue for employers because you, you end up still having that patchwork of state laws that you have to deal with. On the other hand, if you're able to get something like an ERISA preemption provision in there, that would, I think, move em- employers more towards looking favorably on this. Again, ERISA preemption, as you and I well know, is not really a cure-all here. There's years and years of ERISA litigation over what exactly constitutes uh, preemption and how far you can go in preemption. But I think that's certainly something that as we get into the reconciliation debate, something that's going to be there as well. And that, of course, depends on whether or not you can get it into reconciliation. As you know, if it's not a revenue-related provision, it is still subject to the filibuster rule. Whether you can put the paid leave provisions into a reconciliation bill is something that I think is going to take a little bit of finessing. And the further we go into 2021, we get into 2022. This becomes an issue for the 2022 midterm elections. At that point, you might even say that all bets might not be off, but there might be some different ones being made on the table. And I think we're also watching to see what happens on drug pricing. And and I think we've talked about this before too, but the key thing there for employers to take a look at is if there are any caps on what Medicare will pay for prescription drugs, it will be important from an employer perspective that similar caps apply in the private market as well, because the concern there is always if Medicare is paying less than private employers and and their plans may be asked to pay more. So making that a a consistent policy across both the government and the private market, I think will be something to watch as drug pricing legislation moves through Congress. Yeah, that certainly seems to be a favorable one on both sides, at least to talk about it. Whether they're going to do something about it is another issue. Yeah, absolutely. They've been talking about it for a long time. It's the no action. And what about with Medicare and Medicaid? Well, I think one of the interesting things, you had mentioned the expansion of the ACA subsidies. The interesting thing with Medicare and Medicaid is so far, I haven't seen any discussion of a public option coming into play. There is discussion of bringing down Medicare to age 60 or age 55. There also is discussion of filling that Medicaid coverage gap. And if they're not going to do it by federal law, I've seen some indication that they might even decide to do an end run around the states that have not expanded Medicaid and go directly to states and localities in order to have them expand. Medicaid on their own and administer that Medicaid expansion on their own. Carrie, I think it's quite a haul to ask cities to start administering Medicaid. It's difficult enough at the state level. Having cities put in place the infrastructure necessary to do that might be asking a lot. But then again, we're putting a lot into what constitutes infrastructure. But so, hey, you never know what might happen there. Yeah, I agree with you on the substance of that point. I think it would be hard administratively for municipalities and localities to begin to administer Medicaid. I also 
think we could see state legislatures who have not expanded Medicaid in the past passing laws preventing their municipalities from doing that. I mean, we've certainly seen that with a lot of paid leave laws when a city or, or municipality has wanted to enact paid leave, and then we've seen state legislatures coming in and passing laws preventing them from doing that and then having those go to court. So I could see something similar happening if the federal government tried to go to the state uh, localities and municipalities to expand Medicaid. That would be interesting to watch, though. So it's not enough that we've got a government that's not doing anything at the federal or state level. We're going to have levels of the government passing laws preventing other parts of the government from doing anything either. Is that really what we're coming down to? (laughs) We've certainly seen that in the past couple of years on on the leave front. This is true. So let's talk about something a little more uplifting. Last call. Carrie, if you want further evidence that the COVID pandemic is receding into history, look no further than last Saturday night. The 471-day shutdown of Broadway, the longest in Broadway history, ended Saturday night with Bruce Springsteen kicking off a 30-performance limited engagement of his solo show. Springsteen on Broadway ran for more than a year back in 2017 and 2018. It was actually filmed for Netflix. But if there's one thing people have had their fill of after the last 15 months, it's sitting back on their couches and scrolling through Netflix. So here's to Bruce Springsteen taking center stage. The boss is leading the return to normalcy. Broadway theaters were not meant to be shut down. To coin a phrase, Carrie, they were born to run. That was so bad. <laughs> I, I think I think we need to end our report on that. We'd like to thank our producer, Claire Mayette, who always makes us sound better than we deserve, and wishing you a very happy 4th of July from all of us here at Aon. I'm Carrie Willis. And I'm J.D. Pirro. Thanking you for your time this time, and until next time, the bar is closed. 